Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the Irish Memory Studies Network Distinguished Lecture Series on Methodologies of Memory. The first lecture in this series was delivered by Professor Martin Meter from the University of Amsterdam. This lecture was made possible by the College of Arts and Celtic Studies Distinguished Lecture Fund. It was recorded by Real Smart Media. Professor Meter was introduced by Irish Memory Studies Network Director Dr Emily Pine. And today marks a slight departure for the Irish Memory Studies Network and the first lecture in our series which will run for the next year on methodologies of memory. Up until now, our approach in the network has been largely literary and historical. But in order to talk about how memory works in the arena of books and society and the media, we need to think critically about our terms and what, in fact, the word memory actually means. So over the next year, we're going to be exploring these terms and methodologies and how they are used in different fields. I'm immensely pleased that today's lecture will kick off the series, and I very much hope that we can begin to have a truly interdisciplinary conversation. Uh, Martin Meter is a professor in the University of Amsterdam, where he teaches and researches cognitive psychology. He has published work on learning, episodic memory, memory deficits, and the consolidation of long-term memory. He works particularly on the effects and relationship of the hippocampus to what we call memory function. Today, Martin is going to talk to us about trauma and truth, and how the messiness of memory might help us to think through the relationship between those two ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you. I thank you for coming. Since this is a, a department of literature, let's start with a literary quote of Mel Brooks. <laughs> and I'll make a slight change. And the question is, say that this happened to you. Would you want to remember it? Well, chances are that you would. We um, are in love with the truth. We want to know the truth about our lives, and there is a, a, a strong passion throughout the whole Western culture for being truthful. One of the things that that uh, that shows that is that um, if uh, given the question, would you want to know whether your partner was doing this, uh, and so knowing that you would be hurt a lot by it, most people still say. Yes, I would want to know. 96% in a youth survey in America said, yes, I want to know. Um, we don't want to be shielded from the truth. And there's this whole list of advices that self-help books give us. Be yourself, be authentic, be real, truthful to yourself. Live the truth, look yourself in the eyes. But being truthful is not always being happy. So um, there's, uh, throughout uh, uh, the history of literature, there have been works about the devastation brought by people really going for the truth. So one example is The Wild Duck by Ibsen. It's a play in which a man lives a, uh, um, a life of half-truths, and then one of his friends comes back from, from a stay abroad, and is determined to make him live the truth and, uh, and see the truth in the eyes. And this results in utter devastation. Uh, lots of people die, and everybody that remains alive is very unhappy. And another a more recent book by Julian Barnes uh, is about um, a man uh, living back at his quiet life and then being forced by one of his ex-girlfriends to... Uh, look back at something he did in his younger years and whether that was actually a good thing. And uh, so the, the book deals with that your memories can be faulty, but what is implicit is that it's a good thing that you're being forced to admit it, even though he's probably going to be unhappy after the realizations that come about by the events in the book. So we love the truth, even if the truth does not love us. Uh, an extreme example of that is severe depression. Um, if you're really, really depressed 
your life is in misery. And um, there are many cases in which almost nothing helps. One of the thi- few things that does help is electroconvulsive therapy. It's, uh, uh, you probably know it. There's a huge voltage going through your head. You get an epileptic attack. That's actually what is the, the, the curing um, uh, effect. Um, and this, this does uh, bring relief to a majority of patients that, uh, that receive this therapy. And those are the patients that tried everything else and everything else failed. Um, the um, side effect of it is that you lose your memory. It used to be that you lost much of it. Nowadays, it's, it's much more mild. They, they, they change the procedure. And you tend to lose a few cherished memories. And there's an initial period of, of, of confusion that lasts a few months in which you're unable to reach many memories. But when that confusion goes away, your memory gets back online and usually people only have lost a few memories. But still, <clears throat> if you ask people if they are satisfied with the therapy after they've underwent it, you, you notice a strange thing. Immediately after um, the therapy, they're very satisfied. A large majority, up to 90% of patients would do it again and would uh, recommend it to others. This is the period in which they... Um, in which they don't remember things, in which their memory is very bad, but still they, uh, they are happy with the therapy, and that's because they're rid of their depression. If you delay the questionnaire a little, so a few months after, then the, the picture changes. The later you ask, the more patients are dissatisfied. And that is because they start weighing things differently. So the depression is gone, but that has now been a fact of life for a few months, so they suddenly start weighing the loss of memories a lot stronger, more strongly than they did before, and more strongly than being rid of this debilitating depression. So being able to remember your past is weighed more, uh, is weighed as more important than being happy, being functional, being a human being, um, at least if you wait a few months. That people forget how horrible a depression was. So what I'm going to talk about today is first um, whether our memory actually tells us the truth, and this is going to be old data of uh, other things that, that we already know for 30 years. No, our memory does not tell us the truth. Then I'm going to tell uh, 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 and talk about things that show that. Uh, well, our memory may have faults, but still it captures uh, our past in a very accurate way. But not the way that we usually think of. Then I'm going to talk about trauma and how we remember trauma. And finally, I'll talk about therapy and um, what therapy does to our memory. And the take-home message will be that therapy messes with our memory and that is exactly the way it should be. <laughs> so that's uh, going to be the conclusion. Well, first, untruth. Now, this is just a, a review of maybe maybe many of you know these things, um, but maybe some of you don't. There are many ways in which our memory uh, is inaccurate. There are systematic biases in it. The first is that we tend to remember things that things happened according to known script. So when we uh, have episodes that fit a script, we tend to forget everything that did not fit the script and remember things that are in the script but that, we, uh, that did not happen. And the, 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 the most well-known example is, a, is uh, a re- going to the restaurant. If you go to a restaurant, somebody comes and brings you a menu. You order, the food comes, you pay. That's basically the script. If you show people a a movie in which four of those things happen, or three of them happen and one does not, but instead something else happens, then they tend to forget the thing that did not fit the script, and they tend to remember having seen the step that was left out. 
For example, you have a movie about uh, an experience in restaurants, and there's no scene in which, some, in which the menu was brought to the table. People will remember having seen a waiter bring the menu to the table, because that's how it always goes, and our memory kind of fills in the details. We don't remember afterwards what we filled in ourselves and what we really saw happening. And that's the role of a schema. So our, our memory is kind of like a, a skeleton, and a schema, like what, what actually, uh, like the, the normal ways of, that things happen, the, the normal story, fills the details that we don't really remember. And after that happens, we don't really remember, we don't know what is a real memory and what is part of the schema. But this also makes us very vulnerable for su suggestions. Uh, a famous study by Loftus. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus um, uh, showed uh, uh, in this study people were shown clips of cars having a crashing against one another and I say crash but that's not actually what happened they, they kind of slowly bumped against each other and afterwards people were asked questions for example they were asked the question how far, fast did you think the cars were driving when they either bumped against one another or crashed against one another. If the question was crashed, people will uh, estimate the speed uh, much higher than if you say bumped. They saw the same movie, but the way the question is later phrased changes their memory. And even worse, in the movie there's no glass breaking. So it's kind of like this. You see that the car has some damage, but the glass is actually intact. If you ask people how fast did the cars uh, drive when they crashed against one another, a majority of people tells you that they remember glass flying around. So they, the suggestion that the cars were driving fast creates the false memory that glass fly, flew around in the movie. So not only does the schema uh, uh, change movies, uh, a schema that is activated during an event changed the memories. Also, you can later activate a schema by asking a question, and that changes the memory retroactively. But the worst you can do is implant a false memory. And uh, this works as follows. In, in, um, in many, many psychological experiments that have been done, you ask a group of students to participate, and then have the families of those students report four memories, veridical memories from the youth of the student. And the students get a list of five memories. How that? Well, one has been added, an invented memory has been added, that is for everybody the same. In the first study, it was being lost in a mall at the age of five, and bumping against a guy that said, where's your mommy? And then, um, then mother showed up. That's the memory. So everybody gets this story. Right off the bat, some 20% of students say, yes, I remember this, even though it did not happen. Like, at least the family say that it didn't happen. But the word, it gets worse. Because if you ask the people, um, oh, go home. If you ask the students, go home and think about it. Then you let them come back three days later. Now suddenly 60% remembers the event that did not occur. So 60% remembers being lost in the mall. And most report details that were not in the original story. So they have a false memory because of uh, that they were lost in the mall. And they inv invent new details. In fact, there's no difference on lots of measures between a false memory and a true memory. So it makes you wonder how many of our true memories of our youth are actually the same thing, are actually having been told a story and inventing details to go with it. So other uh, memories that have been implanted were, were ruining a wedding and uh, having gone on a balloon ride uh, as a young child. The only thing that did not work was an enema. 
<laughs> that is so shocking that most students say, well, no, I never did that. <laughs> That's probably also a little taboo. So, okay. So our memory is, is, is messing with us. But it's also truthful in, in um, some ways. The, one of the first ways is, is that it has an enormous capacity. Um, depending on your age, probably one of these songs is now playing in your head. Is that right? <laughs> it's, uh, uh, there, if you imagine how many of those songs must be in your head, so melodies, drum lines, etc. That's amazing. It gets even more amazing when we look at pictures. So there have been studies in which people saw pictures, pretty neutral pictures that come from a huge database, and they see every picture one minute. No, one second, sorry. And uh, one psychologist standing uh, <coughs> tried to find the, uh, uh, the maximum capacity of memory. And so he showed more and more of those pictures to people, but he never got to the end. People all were always able to recognize 90% of the pictures they saw. Recognizing means being able to uh, 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 find the pictures that you saw among a, another set of pictures that you did not see. So up to 90% correct, and it does not remember how many pictures you saw. So it seems that our memory has infinite capacity. And if you show the picture very shortly, so you only show them for 50 milliseconds, so that means 20 a second, um, to participants, they still are able to get then half of them correct. And it goes up um, um, to almost perfect with 100 milliseconds per picture. That means that you can look at the stream of 10 pictures a second and still recognize 90% of it. That's not um, a day later. So it's, uh, our, our memory has an amazing capacity. It's also able to uh, mirror uh, the events in the world in different ways. Now this is, and then we now go to something called implicit memory. That's the memories that show through your behavior instead of that you're asked to consciously remember something. And one of, that, uh, one of the forms of implicit memory is so-called priming. And it consists of that you're able to do something better if you've already done it before recently. And the thing that you now have to do is find a red or green diamond. I'm going to show you a picture, and you'll have to look whether there's a red diamond in the picture or a green one. One, two, three, there it goes. You've already seen it. There's one notch missing, the upper or lower one. This takes a while, right? It's upper right below the green triangle. You see it? Okay, but well, it takes a, it takes a long time. People get faster if you if they continuously search for these things. Now, what we did was um, let people experience more of one color than of the other. So there's many of such displays with, for some persons, a red diamond, for others a green diamond, um, and less of the other. One. Those are the biased blocks. So there's blocks of trials, 200, in which you experience one of the two more than the other. Not surprisingly, this is reaction the time that people need to find uh, the target, the, the red or green diamond. And it goes down with blocks. And in a block in which there's more of the one than of the other, you're faster finding the one that is more, that is more frequent. That's the blue line. Then the, the one that's less frequent, that's the yellow line. Well, the, the amazing thing is that this also happens in the neutral blocks in which both uh, occur equally often. Um, so where there's no more uh, uh, difference. So what seems is that having experienced one of those biased blocks, blocks where one of the two colors was more frequent, makes people look for the more frequent one um, throughout the rest of the experiment. And why is that surprising? Because people don't realize that one of the two colors was more frequent. 
So their memory has stored which one was more frequent. People don't realize that that's the case. And it's even one week later, the effect has gone, become bigger. So people still are biased to search for one color, even though they don't remember very much from the previous session, and they don't, didn't realize in the previous session that there was anything odd. So their memory kind of mirrors the, the past, kind of has the essence of the past, even though you don't remember the details. Another one, uh, uh, another form of implicit memory. Uh, this is a really short experiment. Um, also in the circle, there will be a blue square appearing. What you now have to do is clap whenever the blue, cir the blue square appears. You may also see a red dot, and the red, red dot is only there to warn you that the blue square is going to come soon. So, okay, when I say, I say three, two, one, then it starts, then you'll, then you'll see nothing for a few seconds, then a blue square appears. So clap as fast as you can once you see the blue square. Yeah, now. Yeah, well, you already see it happening. Really, really soon you'll be able to use that red dot and clap at exactly the, the regions uh, uh, fast. People get uh, to, to one-fifth of a second if they do this a while. Now the trick is that there's a constant interval between the red dot and the blue square. And we have a timing mechanism that makes us expect the blue square at exactly that interval. But if you once in a while show the red dot at a different interval, people mess, get messed up. They, their, their memory kind of cannot uh, get them ready on time. Well, we did the same thing with uh, biased blocks. And so in some blocks, most of the time, the red dot appeared a long time before the blue square, in others, a short. And um, so, in the in the third and the second the second and the third block, you had one of them very a lot. And what you see is that people, there the the brain of people expect the blue square either shortly after the red dot or after a long time, and that remains the case after hundreds of trials in which there is no imbalance. So again your brain kind of captures the essence of your past and remembers it. Even when we tell people, well, uh, now everything will change, you saw more uh, long intervals, now everything will be short. So you can tell them that the that changes doesn't matter a thing. This is implicit memory, this is un... Uh, you cannot reach there with your, with your consciousness. Now, um, why is that? Well, there's a, an important role that our memory plays, and that is attribution. Our memory tells us what causes what. Um, and uh, in animals, we can investigate that using fear. Those are pretty nasty experiments in which a rat sits in a little cage um, and sometimes hears a tone that is sometimes followed by electricity being put on the floor. So there's no escaping the red will get an electric shock. It will soon come to fear the tone, but it will also come to fear the room. The room is clearly unsafe. And what you can now look at is what does the red thing causes the shock? Either it's the tone or it's the room. If it's the room, then the tone doesn't really matter. That's attribution. What does the red attribute the shocks to? Well, um, that is largely dependent, uh, 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 um, the result of, of the history of the animal. So what did it experience the shocks with? Did it experience shocks only when the tone was playing? Or was the shock sometimes 
given when there was no tone. If there was no tone, then it's clearly not the tone that causes the shocks, it must be the room. But there you see that if that's the case, then the animal becomes afraid of the room. This idea of attribution, of that your memory tells you what to fear, gives a whole new perspective on what memory is for. Memory is not to remember your past. Memory is to tell you about the present. It's to tell you what causes what. So it's there to represent the world uh, as it is, not to remember the past as it was. Well, if you now look at memory biases, you see how that is the case. Schemas get at the essence of, of re repetitive stories. So if, if your life consists of a few elements or a few uh, events that repeat and that always go in the same way, then that's the thing that you need to remember. Because if you go there through it again, that memory will tell you uh, uh, what to do. So, for example, how to behave in a restaurant. If a hundred times the order of events is the same in a restaurant, and one time it's different, then you better go with the 100, because that helps you behave. The one time that it was different, you can forget. And that is what happens. We go with the schema. We go with how things happen. Our memory goes with how things happen all the time, and forgets the one exception. Suggestions. If you get a suggestion that the past was different than you thought it was, well, maybe this suggestion is the more accurate, the newer information. So maybe it's a good thing of memory that it is open to suggestions. Because often your own memories may be faulty, but the suggestion is what is given to you by somebody with a different memory. So maybe going, believing suggestions and altering your memory is not such a bad thing at all. False memories. If somebody, if your family tells you that you experienced something, then that becomes part of your past. And that's the way it often happens. That, uh, many people have the experience that they think they have a childhood memory, and then they look into the, the um, photo album of their parents, and they see, oh, what I thought was my memory is actually the picture that is right here. I must have looked at it and mistaken it for for a memory. But the pictures in the, in the, in the photo album actually tell us what the past was. So it does not make much sense to separate those stories from the ones that we truly remember ourselves if the goal is representing the world as it is. But the last finding that really shows that this is how memory works is something called reconsolidation. This is quite a difficult thing. This is um, uh, um, finding a neuroscience that, that was surprising to lots of people. And it goes as follows. You let an animal experience something. And then you let them re-experience it, but immediately after the experience, you give them a dose of protein inhibitor. What's protein inhibitor? It's uh, a molecule that makes sure that no new proteins are formed. Well, to lay down a memory, you need proteins. So these protein inhibitors stop new memories being formed. But the weird thing is that they also stop old memories from continuing to exist. And the experiments, so how it goes, the, how the experiment goes is that you have a rat again experiencing shock. This is a, a favorite of neuroscientists, unfortunately. That's on a training day. On a second day, they only hear the tone. There's no shock. But they get um, a dose of this protein blocker. And it's a mycin. That's uh, the protein blocker. On day three, you test their fear. It turns out that the animals that experience this uh, uh, set of events are not fearful of the shock. 
So they have unlearned to be fearful of the shock. Well, I should have added that on day two. They are fearful of the, of the tone. So they hear the tone, they think a shock is coming, even though this time it's not coming. And, but if you give them then anisomycin, the memory of the shock is erased, and they don't fear the tone anymore. Uh, this is, of course, compared to a control group that has the tone then, uh, and the shock, then has the tone alone, they are fearful, and then on day three, if you then give the tone again, they are still fearful. So without the anastomycin, the memory is still there. So it seems that re-experiencing something makes a memory fragile. It can suddenly be destroyed with this anastomycin. Well, this is, of course, a fun finding, because maybe we can use it to extinguish trauma. Well, it turns out that anastomycin is not very healthy. <laughs> Using it on patients is not uh, something we should do uh, immediately. But theoretically, this is exciting possibility. Well, follow-up studies showed that this only works if there's a prediction error. So what is a prediction error? Well, the f day one and day two are not exactly the same. Day one is tone plus shock. Day two is tone, no shock. Well, it turns out that that is really essential. It's essential that the animal realizes that something is different on day two. So something must change. And only then memory becomes fragile. Well, that's exactly what you would expect if the goal of memory is to represent the world. So if the events play out exactly as they did in the past, there's no reason to change your memories. Your memories are still a good guide to how the world is. If, on the other hand, your, what you're experiencing now is different from your memory, then it may make sense to change your memory because your old memory is no good guide anymore to what, how the world is, how events play out now. So it seems that our memory is built to change memories that are not um, accurate anymore, that don't reflect how things are now. Well, and that is the process that we call reconsolidation. Reconsolidation is a process that seems to be there to change memories that don't reflect the world anymore. Okay, so interim conclusions. We have a truth fetish. Our memory, but our memory is not built for truth. It's built to represent the world. So now we quickly go to trauma. Many psychological syndromes are, have, um, have been linked to traumatic events happening to patients. So um, it's probably uh, the, the, the tide has turned a little. So um, there are many uh, syndromes that, where the trauma is so um, faint that it does not explain anything anymore. Probably know uh, about multiple personality disorder that would be caused by trauma. Well, the first patient to ever have uh, be reported with a multiple personality disorder in the 20th century uh, was a patient called Eve. And her trauma consisted of having to kiss a dead person. Well, that's not nice, but it does not compare to the horrors that many, many people have experienced in their life without developing multiple personality disorders. So it seems to be that that. Trauma is one element, vulnerability, so that the person is vulnerable in some way, is a more important one. But nonetheless, there are some syndromes that are clearly, clearly traumas uh, are related. So the most important one is post-traumatic stress disorder. That's something you get from a traumatic event. You must have experienced some very, very stressing event in order to be diagnosed with this. Well, you must experience something more, intrusions. So suddenly, while you're busy, you, memories intrude on you and you're back at the time of the trauma. There must be efforts to avoid 
the thoughts and memories and feelings that you have that uh, and stimuli that are related to the trauma. So it must be so bad that you try to get away from it. Um, and then there's many other uh, symptoms, but one of the most important is reactivity. People with post-traumatic stress disorder are the whole time on edge. They're waiting for the trauma to happen again. And that is actually what makes this so um, uh, disabling. That uh, people with post-traumatic stress disorder are with half of their mind constantly busy monitoring the situation whether something horrible will happen again. So for example, a, a, a veteran will constantly be on the lookout for gun noise and will interpret any loud noise that resembles a gun a little as gun noise and think that he is or she is back in a war situation. And that makes it impossible for that person to live a normal life. You cannot spend half your mind looking for war in, while you're in a, in a peaceful society. That, that, that is too distracting. But imagine that Godzilla would walk in there. What would be the smart thing to do? Well, say that we would all survive and that, that Godzilla like wanders through and kind of crashes through the windows and, and gets out again. Um, would it not make sense to be afraid afterwards that this would happen again? And what would, how would, what would we attribute it to? Would we have to attribute it to, uh, to the situation? Is Godzilla maybe living at UCD? So if that's the case, then we could, would better be afraid of UCD, of this campus, and would be fearful whenever we enter this campus. But if, probably he does not, and we know. So it might also be, may, make sense to be afraid of Godzilla wherever we are. Well, and that is the problem, that is the situation that you get post-traumatic stress disorder. If you're afraid of Godzilla wherever you are, you're going to be on the lookout, you're going to have all those symptoms that people with post-traumatic stress disorder have. Well, how could we get rid of this trauma of having seen Godzilla? Well, there's something called extinction. And that is safety learning. Basically learning, okay, something horrible happened once, but now it did not happen for a long time, so we can be safe again. Well, uh, extinction has a long history. So you're probably familiar with Pavlov that made his dogs drool, who made his dogs drool whenever he had a bell. Well, if he stops, that, he did that by ringing a bell, giving them food. Ringing a bell, giving them food. If he rings his bell and does not give food, dogs quickly stop to salivate. That's extinction. So the, the behavior goes away. Um, that also works with, with electric shocks. So um, uh, psychologists can do experiments in which people get very mild electric shocks. This is a study in which there was a blue light and whenever the blue light went on, people got a very mild electric shock. So it's a tiny pain, but still it makes people afraid of the blue light. Um, and then later, there's a phase in which the blue light is shown and there's no shock. Well, then they stop being afraid. Now, the crucial thing was that either that the blue, uh, the, the safety learning, showing the blue light, no shock, happened in a different room than the original learning. If you now place the participant in the room where the safety learning happened, then they are not afraid. And that's kind of what you see here on the left. If, on the other hand, you put them back in the original room where they received the shocks, then they are afraid again of the blue light. That's what you see on the right. The dark line is uh, uh, the uh, black line showing the amount of fear to the blue light. And you see that it's very high again if you sh show the uh, blue light in the same room as where the shocks happened. So there is this oddity that our um, brain assumes that 
uh, safety learning is context dependent. That our brain does not learn that a blue light is now safe. No, it learns that a blue light is safe in the room where uh, the safety learning happens. So it will not generalize this safety learning automatically. Well, by the way, even in Pavlov's study, if, you if Pavlov waited a day, then suddenly they and rang the bell again, then they, the dog started salivating again. So they, their brain seemed to have assumed that this extinction was specific to one day. That it was only on one day that there, uh, that there was, would be no food anymore. It's called spontaneous recovery. Well, this is what people with fear have. So if you, people are fearful to a, to a pathological extent, you can learn, teach them not to be fearful anymore. But it seems to easily be tied to context. So, for example, you have people that are afraid of snakes and uh, that uh, cannot get out of their house because they have this irrational fear that wherever they go there will be snakes. You send them to a therapist, and the therapist can show them snakes and uh, get them to stop being afraid of snakes. But then they move to a different city, and they become fearful again. Their safety learning is tied to the city in which they learned to uh, not be fearful. So, um, and this ties into... Uh, a, a strange finding with, with post-traumatic stress disorder and that is that not everybody gets post-traumatic stress disorder from the same trauma so one study looked at 26 elementary school children that were uh, taken hostage by a madman so he um, went into school with a gun took everybody hostage and um, uh, Negotiated with the police two, for two hours before he came out. Of those 26 children, 25 showed immediate stress symptoms. And that one child that did not <laughs> is a little weird. <laughs> but I don't know what, what happened to, to him. I do know that's him. But, uh, um, of those 25, seven developed uh, post traumatic stress disorder. And then 12 something else. And just seven were just fine. But if you look at those numbers, it seems like a, a lottery. So you have the same trauma. Some kids develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and some do not. Well, the theory that my colleagues and I have been pushing is that it depends on what you attribute horror to. So something horrible happens. Now you can attribute it to the context in which it happened. Then you become fearful of, for example, the classroom in which the um, the uh, hostage taking happened. You can also become fearful of some stimulus that happened to be there. For example, men. You can become fearful of men. Um, because the hostage taker was a man, you can think of, uh, like your brain can... Assume that all men are hostage takers. Or you can become fearful of men in a specific context. So, for example, a man in a classroom. But in that case, you're probably not going to experience much fear if you have a female teacher. That is. And now the idea that we want to push is that the people that assume that some stimulus predicts horror... Those are the people that develop post-traumatic stress disorder. The people that assume that the context had something to do with it, those are the people that are fine. Because a context you can avoid, and a context you can do safety learning in, so you can relearn that this context is safe, but a stimulus that is very hard to learn, that it's ever safe, because our brain assumes that safety learning is context-dependent. Well, do we have any evidence? We do. Um, and this is um, a study where we had people test, uh, look at faces while there was a picture in the background. They were told to ignore the picture. But then later they have to tell whether uh, the, the picture and the, con uh, and the 
whether the face and the picture and the background belong together. So there's a surprise test to test how well they connected the face to the picture behind it, the context. Turns out that your contextualization, we made an index of that, is related to trait anxiety. Trait anxiety is how f kind of your neurosity. So how, uh, sorry, neuroticness. <laughs> so how easily you become nervous, how easily you become afraid. The more, the, the easier you become afraid, the less likely you are to learn about context. Uh, how it is tied to. Mm. We had a different study that worked kind of the same. So you have pictures uh, with words. You have to remember the words. And then a test, the picture is either the same or different. The picture does not matter. But it turns out that most people have better memory when the picture on the background is the same at study and at test. Well, this is a context effect. We looked at that as a function of cortisol, a stress hormone. If you, cortisol was either given long before or just before the test or the, the, the learning or no cortisol was given. But the placebo, that's a little water so that people that uh, uh, receive nothing, uh, uh, that receive cortisol don't think, well, uh, why do I get an injection and the others don't? Well, it turns out that if you received cortisol long before the study, and long means um, some uh, three hours, then you're, you become more attuned to context. If, on the other hand, the cortisol is given just before you start learning, you become less attuned to, to context. So the stress hormone, it seems to, to uh, change how well you bind uh, elements to their context. And what would that matter? Well, if you are in a stressful situation, you'll have lots of cortisol in your blood. And what seems is that immediately after, you're not likely to tie an event to its context. So it means if Godzilla comes in, cortisol will go up in all of us, and we'll look at Godzilla and not tie him to this room. So we'll not contextualize the fact that suddenly this monster appears. If, on the other hand, we were already stressed some time ago, three hours ago, then we will tie it to the context. And why would that be? Well, uh, uh, a surprising thing. So if you suddenly become stressful, that is when you should learn that um, context has nothing to do with it. Because you can be surprised in any context. If, on the other hand, you are already stressful, that is usually because you know that you're in a stressful situation. Well, then you should not learn that if, for example, you're in a jungle and you're afraid that a tiger will appear. Well, if the tiger appears, then you should tie that to the jungle. You should not then learn that tigers can appear whenever, at any moment, in any context. So it seems that our brain prepares us either to tie things to the context or not. So, interim conclusion. Uh, second part. Trauma messes up our lives. We can easily get uh, psychological disorders from having experienced traumatic uh, situations. But the extent to which that happens varies dramatically from person to person. And what we've been, uh, my colleagues and I have been saying is that that's a function of how we attribute horror. Whether we attribute horror to context or whether we attribute horror to um, stimuli. Well, last point. Uh, I'll go through this very quickly because I said that I would be finished in 45 minutes and <laughs> that's already done, over. So, therapies started with the goal of knowing yourself. But, uh, um, well, we know that the Freudian ideas of the start, like the, the ideas that Freud started with, are wrong, are desperately wrong. Um, so, perhaps... 
if he cured patients, that was not because he, allow, he you, uh, let them know it themselves, but because he gave them a story. He gave them a story about what caused their problems. And giving a story is a provision that, uh, provision of some story is part of every form of therapy, of psychotherapy, of internet therapies, for example, in which you are told to write down, write uh, about trauma, um, and then look at causes, and then try to find some plus. So what you're doing is, as a therapist, is instructing people to find a story about what caused their problems. And ideally one that ends with a happy, uh, that has an happy ending. Well, there's a, a form of therapy that, that is amazing in how ill-founded it is. That's um, reincarnation therapy. And the idea of reincarnation therapy is to find the uh, previous life that caused your problem. So uh, you're depressed? Well, that must be because you were uh, a French uh, noblewoman and your head has been chopped off. And so once you realize that this is the reason that you feel so sad, because <laughs> you still, still uh, mourn uh, uh, your previous life, then that allows you to, uh, to uh, uh, get better. Well, this clearly gives, is giving a story disregarding whether it's true or not. So, what does that, why do, does telling a story help us so much? Well, maybe because of, it gives us closure. So, um, what is this? You probably don't see it, right? Cow. Huh? Cow? Yeah, it's a cow. Yes, very good. Seeing a picture where you don't see what it is is mildly unpleasant. Um, and um, many other problems where we don't really see the solution are unpleasant. It's much more pleasant to know uh, everything and to have an opinion. And that's called closure. People like closure. They like to be able to set, to finish something, to be able to interpret the finding or have an opinion. They're done. They like it. That's maybe what therapy gives us. Maybe it's extinction because you're, you're having to relive trauma in the safety of your own bed. Maybe it's a positive spin, but, and that is what I think is behind lots of forms of therapy, it also changes how you feel about the cause of your problems. It changes attribution. So many stories turn out to be contextualization stories. Yes, bad stuff happened to you, but that was then in that context, because of that context, so it won't happen now. And what's not clearly not uh, important in therapy is finding the truth. So, conclusions. Our memory is not built for truth. Uh, and it's uh, 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 not that bad, because the truth is, uh, about our past is not always helpful for present happiness. Well, if you're a therapist, you have to deal with the fact that patients want the truth. So um, you don't have to lie to them. That would be unethical. But you can merrily uh, help them mess with their own memory, which will happen out of itself. And <laughs> therefore, you only have to step back and uh, they'll develop the happy memories that uh, make them better. Okay, that's it.